If you're new here today, welcome. You've landed in our third week of our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. As a recap, Jesus started his Sermon on the Mount with a beatitude, and it acts as a mirror and a vision, a mirror that shows us our sin to push us to Jesus for salvation, and it's also a vision of the kingdom of God to pull us to Jesus for transformation. As Jesus transforms us more and more by the Holy Spirit to become the people described in Beatitudes, Jesus says we become salt and light to the world. How the Holy Spirit makes us to be salt and light is by enabling us to do the right thing with the right heart, by fulfilling what was missing in the law, which is a new heart to do the right thing as God commanded, but to do it with the right heart that God desires. Jesus says, You have heard, but I say to you, Jesus now gets really practical and shows us what this new heart obedience looks like for specific commands in specific life situations. Jesus, the master teacher, uses six case studies to illustrate what doing the right thing with the right heart looks like on the ground. Six case studies on what it looks like for heaven to be on earth. And these six case studies starts with Jesus using the phrase, You have heard, but I say to you. He explains to his disciples, this is what you have heard to obey the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament laws, but I say to you, I will now teach what is the intention and heart of those laws. I'll teach you how to truly obey those laws. I will teach you how to do the right thing with the right heart. You see, Jesus doesn't teach an abstract holiness and righteousness. Jesus gets real and practical about holiness and righteousness. The kingdom of God is not a philosophy. It's not a creative idea. It's real life under God's grace and rule. And the first case study that he starts with is murder. The sixth commandment, thou shall not kill. Jesus will teach us that at the heart of murder is anger. Murder is the last stop on the train of anger. Read with me verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus' disciples have been taught that anyone who disobeys the sixth commandment, which prohibits murder, will be subject to judgment. But Jesus says that anyone who is angry with a fellow brother and sister in the faith will also be subject to judgment. Jesus is teaching his disciples that you break the sixth commandment not just by killing someone, but also by being angry at someone. Jesus is making the point that the sixth commandment was pointing to a more fundamental problem. That in our anger, we have a murderous heart. Our anger towards someone reveals a heart that desires to cut people out of our lives, to take people out. It's actually not that hard to see this truth. Just tap on your social media app and you'll find it all over your feed if you follow any major newspaper or broadcaster. The vilifying anger and the level of outrage is actually disturbing. We as a modern society is quite unsettlingly a very angry people. 
As we look at Jesus' words here, he treats angry people very seriously, the same level of seriousness as he would treat murderers. So many have rightly sought to understand the type of anger that Jesus is condemning. Some have distinguished between godly anger and selfish or sinful anger. Godly anger is the righteous indignation for injustices in the world. Selfish anger is burning not at sin or injustice, but at minor offenses to ourselves. And honestly, I actually don't find that kind of definition or distinction all that helpful. Yes, it works to say that we shouldn't be angry over minor offenses or inconveniences. We should not have the heart to kill or destroy someone over the things that test our nerves or patience. But what if you were truly sinned against? What if injustice is not just out there? What if you are truly the victim of injustice? What then would be the righteous or sinful response to that? So I wasn't satisfied with the categories of godly anger towards sin and injustice and selfish anger towards minor offenses. So I kept searching the scriptures until I found a place in the Bible which illustrates, I think, a more helpful way at looking at anger. And it's in the book of Jonah. In the story of Jonah, we see that God gets angry and Jonah gets angry. But the anger are very different. The story of Jonah is set in the time of the Assyrian Empire, where the city of Nineveh was notorious for crimes against humanity. The story of Jonah opens with God being angry with Nineveh. God is angry at Nineveh's crimes, sins, and injustices. So what does God do with this anger towards Nineveh? Well, he calls and sends Jonah to go to Nineveh to tell them that they are in sin, but God would give them a second chance if they would repent from their sinful ways. God is angry at sin and injustice, but his anger is governed, controlled, and directed by mercy. His anger moves him towards the people of Nineveh. Now, when Jonah is told by God to go to Nineveh to pe- preach repentance, he is also angry at Nineveh. And he has every right to be angry at Nineveh because the crimes of Nineveh were committed against his own people. He is the victim of sin and injustice. But how does Jonah respond in anger towards Nineveh? He runs in the complete opposite direction to Nineveh. Do you see the difference between God's anger and Jonah's anger? Both are angry at sin and injustice. But God's anger is governed, controlled, and directed by mercy, which moves God towards the Nineveh for their restoration. Jonah's anger is governed and controlled and directed by hate, which moves Jonah away from Nineveh for their destruction. God's anger is restorative. Jonah's anger is destructive. Even at the end of the story of Jonah, Jonah still harbors a hateful anger that desires to see Nineveh destroyed. Jonah says at the end of the story, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah continues to be angry at Nineveh. But the difference is God's anger is restorative. Jonah's anger is destructive. God's anger is a merciful anger. Jonah's anger is a hateful anger. 
merciful anger and hateful anger, I think are better distinctions than godly and selfish anger. Merciful and hateful anger, I think, are more fitting categories to what Jesus is getting at here in the Sermon on the Mount. Hateful anger is murderous with its attitudes to move away from the people you hate, to cut off or to destroy the people you hate. And merciful anger aligns with this passage to restore relationship, which we will see next. I also think the categories of merciful and hateful anger are better categories to counsel one another. As we seek to counsel one another, we can affirm anger is a valid feeling. It's shown in the Bible. Anger is an emotional function of our moral judgment. When it comes to trying to determine whether the situation that caused anger was sinful or just a minor offence, we may not be in the best position to judge. We may not know the people involved. We may not know the full story. And someone's hurt is valid, but also subjective. What I think will be more constructive is to ask What is governing, controlling, and directing your anger? Is your anger governed and controlled and directed by hate or mercy? I think this applies to grave injustices, but it also applies even for minor offences. That question gets to the heart of anger, which is what Jesus wants to get to your heart. If your anger is riding on hate, then the train of hateful anger will take you down the tracks of bitterness avoidance, separation, destruction, and even murder. That is how anger leads to sin. If your anger is riding on hate, then it's time to change trains and jump onto the train of merciful anger. The train of merciful anger doesn't deny the sin and injustice. It doesn't deny the real and raw feelings of anger, but it will go down the tracks of being slow to anger, patience, forbearance, Possibly restoration. It's not a guarantee because I believe true restoration and reconciliation is dependent on repentance. So you may not get to restoration, but you will always get to God's peace. The train of merciful anger may not stop at restoration, but all stops will lead to the peace of God. And so Jesus says, in your anger, look at your heart. There's nothing wrong with being angry, but in your anger, what is the posture, what is the foundation of your heart? Is it merciful or is it hateful? Jesus says also, look at your words. Your words will reflect the state of your heart. You may not take out a gun or a knife to attack someone, but do you weaponize your words? I know I do. In your anger, do you shotgun spray people with hateful and hurtful words like you fool or rakar, which is an abusive word that means empty, like nitwick or numbskull. Or if you're like me, do you use your words like a sniper? You sit there silently, waiting and waiting, thinking and thinking of what to say, and out of nowhere you fire words that are absolute kill shots that tear people to shreds. Jesus says in your anger, look at your words and look at your heart. Is the posture and foundation of your heart hateful or merciful? Hateful anger moves away from people. Merciful anger moves towards to people. A merciful heart is the only way to extinguish a hateful and murderous heart. Jesus now gives two practical applications to extinguish a murderous heart. The first was 
is with brothers and sisters in the church. Reading on from verse 23, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Jesus is saying that reconciliation with a brother or sister in church needs to take precedence over religious activity. Jesus knows our sinful hearts so well. He knows that in our hateful anger, we can hide our anger with religious activity. In our sinful nature, we can easily play good with religious activity when our hearts are bad with others. Jesus is highlighting how terrible this kind of behavior is. This kind of behavior is actually toxic religion. Because one of the signs of toxic religion is that we cover up one area of sin by a whole lot of religious activity. So it's, yeah, I hate that jerk, but at least I go to church more than he does, or I lead a Bible study, or I'm on the church council and committee. Toxic religion kills the church community with politeness and a whole lot of overcompensating religious activity. Jesus says, stop what you're doing and deal with the problem. Deal with each other. People can see it. Let's not ignore it or avoid it. So seek real reconciliation before you go and worship God. As you hear Jesus teach this, you might be, hey, look, this is kind of like my marriage. Is a dynamic in your marriage where your spouse has offended you and rather than blow up and have a fight about it, you try to be the better person. Don't get outwardly angry. But you make it your point that you do things better than your spouse. You get busy with being the better one with domestic duties, busy being the better one with your commitments to your kids, busy with being the better one with your church commitments. You turn up on time, you serve more. What are you doing? You're hiding your seething anger with moralistic activity in a passive, aggressive way to hang a debt of guilt on your spouse. Have you done this? Honestly, I've done this in my marriage. This is toxic for marriage. It doesn't resolve the issue that caused the anger. The offending spouse actually wants to see their husband or wife get mad and angry. It shows that they care about the relationship enough to be offended. And all that domestic, I'm the better spouse, pseudo-religious activity has the effect of pushing your spouse away because you're hiding from dealing with the real issue. Jesus says, stop what you're doing and deal with the problem. Deal with each other. Don't do the dishes. Do the real work of reconciliation. And so the first case is don't cover up your anger with being busy with religious activity. The second application relates to accusers or adversaries in the law court. Verse 23, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus illustrates a scenario where someone is taking you to court for unpaid debts. Jesus exhorts to settle matters and to come to an agreement before having the matters be resolved in courts. Jesus is exhorting to reach settlement or restoration with the other party directly to save yourself from more severe judgment and penalty. In both applications, Jesus is making the point to pursue reconciliation as a matter of urgency. Jesus is calling his disciples to have a merciful heart. And what that practically looks like is to seek reconciliation with a brother or sister 
before you see them on Sunday where practically possible. It's talking directly to the person rather than talking about the person. It's seeking restoration and reconciliation before having to get a mediator or judge in. That is what it practically looks like to be a peacemaker. So how do we do this? How do we become peacemakers? How do we, in our anger, respond with mercy and not hate? If at the heart of the sixth commandment is the fundamental problem of our hateful hearts, then the only way we can truly obey the sixth commandment is to have a new heart. And we can have a new heart when Jesus takes out the hateful anger from our hearts by taking the liability of our anger. What do I mean? Well, take a look back at the text. Look at verse 21. And do you notice the word that Jesus used that means liable in the original Greek three times? It says, verse 21, your anger is subject to or liable to judgment. Verse 23, answerable or liable to the court. He means the Jewish court. And in danger or liable to the fire of hell. Remember, Jesus saying these words, and the remarkable thing is that in just a few chapters later in the Gospel of Matthew, these three liabilities could map out the last 12 hours before Jesus was crucified. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He gets betrayed. He gets arrested. And it was brought before Roman judgment. Judgment. Then he is brought before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin court. Then Jesus is hanging on the cross and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was happening there? Jesus was voluntarily taking upon himself our liability. He was taking upon himself the liabilities for our anger, for our words and our hateful arts to save us from the fires of hell, the due penalty and judgment for our angry sins. So when Jesus was on the cross, there we see most clearly, most vividly, God's merciful anger. God's righteous anger against sin and injustice was poured out on his son Jesus. And at the same time, at the cross, Jesus showed mercy. He offered us reconciliation. At the cross, Jesus made a way for us to be reconciled to God, not by tolerating our sin and anger, but by pardoning our sin and anger, by Jesus taking the liability of our sin and anger. At the cross, there is where you see sin and anger are expunged and extinguished so that we can walk free. This is the key to having a new heart to make us to become reconcilers and peacemakers. As disciples of Jesus, what we do is that we take our worst offense and we take them to the cross and there they are nailed to the cross and there they die with Jesus at the cross. And there we have full assurance that God is no longer rightfully angry at our sin. When we receive such amazing mercy of an undeserved grace, when God and his mercy moves towards you in such a way then it changes your heart to move to the person that you have reasons to hate, to move that person also towards God's mercy. What you are moved to do in your mind and in your heart and in your prayers is to take that person, recognizing the violence of their actions, and to take them to Jesus Christ and to say to Jesus, would you do to them what you did for me? They don't deserve it, but I don't deserve it either.
Would you do for them what you have done for me? And in your changed mind and heart, you keep praying that prayer for very long without at the beginning to at least to begin to seek in seed form to love and desire restoration with that person. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, the arc of the moral universe is long but bends towards justice. Meaning the moral universe will move towards justice. And many interpret that Martin Luther King is... What he's saying there is just sheer optimism in mankind. But this is a misunderstanding of Martin Luther King's point. Martin Luther King was not an optimist. That comment grew out of confidence that God stands against injustice and he will not let it stand forever. And that conviction motivated Martin Luther King to go out and work tirelessly for justice. But at the same time, Martin Luther King was famous for loving perpetrators of injustice. How does he hold those two things together? He does it because of the logic of the cross. He does it because of the God's merciful anger on the cross of Christ. As followers of Jesus, we are loved as enemies of God who deserve God's righteous anger, and we're loved into the family of God. And that reshapes our heart from the inside to the outside. And the difference it makes on the outside is that we can stand against injustice, but as we do it, we do it without hate. We can do it with the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. We do it looking into the perpetrator's eyes and saying, it is my prayer that we would win justice, but we would also win you. So we are to say to Jesus Christ, will you bless my enemies? Because I was an enemy and you blessed me. I realize that as we work through this passage, it brings up all kinds of pain. Some things that has happened just this week or things that has happened over many years that might bring up anger and other feelings. It will touch perhaps in areas of pain. I'm sensitive to that, but I hope you can see that Jesus is not always gentle with his words, but he's always kind and loving. And he wants to reach into your hearts to surgically remove the heart of hate and bitterness. Otherwise, it will own you. He wants to take it out and to leave it at the cross of Christ. So let him do that deep work in you. Don't be like Jonah, run the other way. Don't be like the Pharisees and hide behind religious activity. Please don't after the service do the religious work of morning tea without Jesus doing the work in your heart. Bring your liabilities to Jesus. Entrust him with your worst. Entrust him with your hate. Entrust him with your pain. Entrust him with your hurt. Entrust your right and retribution to him. Then allow him to lift you up off your knees and send you out with his commission to be salt and light to the world, to be peacemakers, to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, we bring up areas of great darkness in our hearts but you don't do it just to leave us with that. You bring these things up to heal us. And so we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that even right now, you would awaken in our hearts those areas that need to be healed. And will you apply the cross of Jesus Christ to make our hearts new? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.